Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Look, hi, Peter. I'm uh, pretty excited about uh, tomorrow and the Reserve Bank. Uh, Will they or won't they cut interest rates? I hope they don't, but I guess some parts of the people in the property business hope they do. You're probably like that, Peter, and I guess it's... uh, that's probably a good segue <laughs> talking about our first guest because uh, it's Margaret Lomas. Yes, and, and Margaret, of course, from Destiny Financial Solutions. She is arguably, I think, the best when it comes to telling people where they should be thinking about investing if you want to be a property investor. And I do want to ask her about what she's seeing in terms of the bottoming of the house price falls. Shane Oliver is actually basically saying, he's from AMP, he's actually saying, he can see the bottoming process happening. He's still Look, it's interesting. I mean, I, all the data before has shown us that when the property market goes through, you know, spikes and then comes off, it sits and doesn't do a lot. Yeah. And we've always said about 14 15% was about previous falls, yeah. but then typically what the market will do is go sideways. Yeah. Now that people are sort of talking about a bottoming, I'm not expecting it necessarily to rebound, but nope. it... it but if anything, it just could sort of meander along. Yeah. But some of the hype about, you know, the 40% falls, we, we'll, we'll, they'll just die, I yeah. guess. I, the only way these guys could ever be right would be if we had a serious recession. And I guess what yep. Donald Trump's doing at the moment is a bit of a worry. But a serious recession could make it the, the house price falls be 20 25%. I still think 40 you need devastation. Well, the two catalysts, Peter, are unemployment, yep. which, is, you know, that would be a serious recession scenario, yep. or interest rates going up well at the moment interest rates are going down Damn. so the, the only sort of the risk the only way these guys can ever be right is if the economy does fall in the hole yeah, exactly right then we've got dr ron uh, ron weinberger he's a ceo of m uh, em vision or m vision paul well i did uh, i actually interviewed ron uh and uh, look, he said you could pronounce it either because I asked him. I was saying EM Vision, then he said M Vision. I said, "Well, like, what I, is look, it? It's, he's not sure to be he's honest. Flex, like, he's, flex, he's flexible, right? look, anyway, but it's a really he, exciting. He knows his business yeah, better than his name. It's a really exciting company, yeah. Peter, involved in uh, in a medical device business, yeah. but some very interesting te- technology for the early diagnosis of stroke." Mm. which apparently at the moment, you know, if you, that if you have a stroke, no one actually knows until you've actually had an M- MRI, okay. and that can be often, you know, 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours later. Yeah. And this technology, you actually sort of diagnose it on the spot. But what I didn't appreciate, Peter, was that there are different types of stroke. Mm. And actually, it's not just a matter about knowing you had a stroke, it's sort of which type is... Look, sounding in my medical knowledge is yeah. on me. It, it really does impact how you immediately treat a patient. So... Mm. No, I, I, I interviewed Ron you know, some time ago and I was, I was exactly like you, really, really impressed about A, what they're trying to do and B, what we don't know about something that could really devastate your life and the life of your family for the future. And it's an ASX listed company. I did ask him why it's listed on the ASX as well, given that it's probably a global 
business. But, you know, again, it's not making any money yet, but it's got some interesting technology and yeah. something to think about. One for the speculators, that's for sure. Then Tracy Angwin, CEO and founder of the Australian Payroll Association and director of Payroll HQ will join. To talk us about, there's like a whole lot of fraud in the payroll department, which a lot of people are not aware of, but apparently people have been paying, overpaying super. That doesn't that doesn't surprise me. We know they underpay a bit, but uh, well, I suppose that does surprise it does me. But, surprise you. but I guess payroll for a lot of companies is their biggest expense, Peter. So uh, maybe it's a it's in a good area to have a yeah. little bit of focus. And on. And a lot of people are so busy doing their business, they just take their eye yep. off really important things like that. So that's the show coming up. But for the very first uh, segment, the wonderful Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial Solutions. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, Margaret, let me ask questions that may well, you know, not be the, the sort of questions you want me to ask, but these are the questions that my listeners would love me to ask is, <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think that the house price fall bottoming process is actually starting to happen? Oh, brother. <laughs> Come on, and be right as well. <laughs> be right. Well, you know exactly the first words that are about to come out of my mouth, mm. and that is that, first of all, not everywhere has been falling, and secondly, where are you talking about? Sydney, you Melbourne first. Sydney? <laughs> okay, of course, you know, the only two markets, according to too many people, uh, I think my personal opinion is that in the last week or two we've seen a rally but don't you think that's probably because people are so excited and enthusiastic about the fact that negative gearing staying on the table mm. you know the result was such a shock result although not really if you talk to most people um, and I just wonder whether people were holding their breath a little bit before the election, putting a false reading on how quickly everything was falling and now those same people are jumped back in and now it might be putting a, a small false reading on how quickly they're rising. Yeah, look, Margaret, I think you're right there in the sense that we know elections are, are bad for economic activity, including people making major decisions like uh, looking at houses or, for that matter, selling a house. So I guess we're just seeing a bit of a relief rally in the sense that we're not going to get the changes, but look, maybe we're uh, maybe it's a bit more than to that. We've had a change. Certainly, the interest rate scenario has changed a little bit, and APRA is sort of, uh, you know, maybe things will get a bit easier in terms of what people will be able to borrow. But uh, so it sounds like you're sort yep. of just seeing it more as relief at the moment. You're not ready to say that uh, at least in the big markets of Sydney and Melbourne, we've necessarily uh, gone as far south as we're going. Is that what how you see it? Yeah. Look, and that's based mainly on the fact that I still believe that most of the places in Sydney and Melbourne are still overpriced for the average person, whether or not you can borrow money. I mm. mean, we're seeing people now getting excited about the first homeowner's scheme to guarantee a deposit of only 5%. I'm worried about that as well because, again, it encourages people to get into properties that are well over what they can really afford and therefore get into a difficult position if we do face rising interest rates, which, of course, none of us are really predicting for a while, but you just never know and you can never say never on things like that. I just think that potentially we really went such a long way with Sydney. We went a fairly long way with much of Melbourne. We really got to the top edge of what people can afford. And without that wages growth that we're still not seeing, I just can't see where that impetus is going to come from to suddenly go back to having a booming market again. Um, I do think, however, that 
the good news coming out of the sigh of relief that we can breathe after the election is that some of those other smaller markets that many of us have been talking about, like the Brisbane markets, some of our large regional areas, will probably see some really renewed investor interest. And I think they're probably going to be the places to be. Yeah, so Margaret, you know, historically, this this kind of um, boom that we've seen and it's quite substantial fall in house prices, it's more likely when we, when we do get the bottom that prices in Sydney and Melbourne will go sideways for some time. Is that your, your best guess? Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I don't see any big falls. I think, again, uh, you know, we've come through so many unusual situations in the last year or two or three years. We had a boom in Sydney overlaid then by APRA, really tightening up on lending restrictions. On the other hand, we had lowering interest rates, and it's been all over the shop. You know, on the other hand, again, if you've got four hands, uh, we didn't have, uh, we haven't had wages growth. So, so it's been a really, really unusual situation, and I truly feel that we had a bigger fall or a recorded bigger fall, if you if you to believe the figures. And let's remember that they're all based on medians and other things that aren't terribly accurate. But we had a bigger fall in Sydney and to a lesser extent Melbourne than we otherwise would have had if we didn't have so many people scared about what Labor was going to do had they gotten into government. And so now we're going to have a less of a big fall and probably a flattening of prices in those areas just until we can start to see slightly better economic news. I mean, we really don't have fabulous economic news, let's be honest, at the moment. We're quite subdued. Nobody's using the R word at the moment, but if it looks like a duck and smells like a duck, you've got to think you've got one there. Um, I, I just think that for, the, for now, that sideways or that, not even sideways, just that sit flat is going to happen for a couple of years yet. I don't, think, I don't think I've ever smelt a duck, but go on, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I think I asked Margaret... Uh, I think ducks do smell, actually. Yeah, but I've never smelt one. I've heard they them. They smell great. They look like a duck. <laughs> it's the first time anyone's they introduced smell the, like smell, the smell factor into, in that old saying, but I like it, Margaret. I'll, I'll use it they, in the future. They smell good when you cook them. <laughs> yes, that's true, Paul. Now, Margaret, I said at the outset that uh, APRA's at least announced a plan to uh, ease up on one of its restrictions, although it probably won't come into effect till maybe July, maybe even August. Just how... Yeah bigger thing has been the inability to get credit. Has that been a big factor with your clients in particular as to, as is, is it still hard out there at the moment? Paul, it's been horrible, let's be honest. It's been absolutely appallingly horrible because it's been not only the fact that, first of all, you've had to be approved at 7% interest, sometimes 7.5% mm-hmm. interest, even if you're accessing a 3.85% fixed rate. You're still being approved at seven, but you're also being approved as if you're paying P and I repayments. Mm. Now, the problem is not so much for people getting into their first loan. It's for people who already have maybe five or six properties under their belt because the bank goes back and has a look at the existing loans that they have and assesses those at 7% P and I, even if you're only paying whatever you're paying. So it's been ridiculous mm. because it's building far too big a margin. And then on top of that, with all of this having to declare your expenses thing, oh, they're building a margin in on that as well. So we've got margins all over the place. And in reality, it's halved 
people's borrowing capacity. And we have clients who are earning 150 to 200,000 and they're struggling to borrow $1 million. Mm. Whereas a couple of years ago, they probably could have gotten three. Yeah, so that's why I'm really glad Paul asked the question because this is only an area that you've been watching for, well, decades really, and you've never seen this kind of restriction of loans to genuinely good borrowers. Never seen it this bad before. I can remember a time many years ago when the banks were working on what was called a serviceability rating, and it still is, but it was done differently and essentially... They required you to have a dollar twenty-five coming into the house for every dollar that you had committed to all commitments, including your expenses and your loans and everything else. But they took into account what you were currently paying on those loans, not what they thought you might have paid. So you had to have a dollar twenty-five coming in, and then it got right down to a dollar five, and then for a little while it was a dollar, which I thought was going far too far. And overcommitting people, but at a dollar twenty-five, that doesn't sound like a big cover, but it is a fairly big cover to have. But even at those rates, you found then that people who were on those higher incomes, who had similar expenses to someone on a lower income, had greater borrowing capacity. But it doesn't work like that now. And really, the people on the higher incomes are the ones who tend to be a bit more disadvantaged than the people on those lower incomes who don't necessarily have any other loans. Now, let's put you on the spot, Margaret. Uh, I know you don't like talking about the market as a whole because, as you always point out, the property market is a two or three or five million different pieces of property in different markets to all very different streets and suburbs. She says the same things over and over again, this woman. (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, I've got to to put you on the spot. So um, I'm looking for an area or some places. You mentioned regional parts of... You know, regional mm. Australia that you think might be looking a little more attractive. So, do you want to start just mm. uh, with a couple of areas you, you sort of point to in in, uh, in regional Australia? Sure. And look, Peter, just so you know, the reason that I say things over and over and over again is because nothing ever changes about property advice. Um, mm. You know, I know there are plenty of spruikers out there who are the good times guys, and if, if something changes, then they change their strategy to fit whatever the latest is. But as far as I'm concerned, there's one way and one way only to invest in property and whether interest rates are high or low and whether money is easy or hard to get and whether the property's high or, uh, property market is high or low, that one way to buy property remains. And, and by the way, Margaret, sure. I, I should say it's so unusual to meet a woman who's inflexible like, like this. You know, <laughs> you're so unique. But go on, I love I love your inflexibility. <laughs> yeah, I, I am pretty inflexible, aren't I? Um, but it's worked. You know, all of this time, and I think more importantly, it keeps property investors safe. If you understand that there's a method by which you buy property, there's criteria by Mm. which an area must stack up for you to buy there, then you're going to go a fair way toward protecting yourself from, you know, buying property in in those areas that the Spruikers all talk about that do better for them than they would ever do for you. But let's go to some areas, and I'm liking a lot of the um, areas just out of Melbourne that. I guess Melbourneites still considered to be regional, but if you were talking to me and people in Sydney, then you probably wouldn't consider them to be regional because they're not quite far enough out for that to, to be the case. But we're talking about, if you go right out um, north and go up past um, Craggyburn 
and up around Kilmore. I think that's a good long-term art. We're starting to see more interest in places like that. Um, Sunbury's been doing very well for quite some time now, much to a lot of people's disgust because nobody thought it would do that well. And just past there is Gisborne, and I think Gisborne is one of those areas that is going to really, you know, come into focus now that Melbourneites are starting to understand that you just might need to go a little bit out of the main parts of town in order to see a goodbye. I'm still liking so much of Geelong. And one of the things I like about Geelong is you can have an area like East Geelong with a median of 600,000 and go to the very next suburb and find a median of only 310,000. Yeah, that's a big difference, exact, isn't it? Yeah, the exact next suburb. Now, admittedly, that bordering suburb has still got a little bit of a stigma. Some uh, state housing still exists there, but you'll definitely see that ripple effect come right through there and those other areas being bought up by some investors and some owner-occupiers will start to do a lot better. So I'm thinking, you know, in Melbourne that they're really, really good places to think about. When what about it comes Mordred, to Sydney, they're all sort of outer, sorry? they're all sort of within the argument the Melbourne commuter belt, I guess, at a pinch, Geelong and and uh, yep. Craigieburn and places like that. Are there any more traditional regional areas that you want to nominate? Look, some say Shepparton is one that is going to do quite well. It's very multicultural in Shepparton and they've actually got a pretty good employment rate there. And I think Shepparton is one of those ones where if you don't want to take any sort of a gamble on whether or not you're going to get a sudden boom, Shepparton's probably going to skip along fairly nicely and do okay for you. I, I do know people... As an investor market, we're saying, aren't we? Yeah, look, as an investor, obviously, if you're an owner-occupier, you're only going to live in Shepparton if you can also work there. But as um, a, an investor, there are certainly people who are moving into Shepparton for employment who are looking for rentals. And you can you can probably expect some good... You know, I'm not calling it as being big growth, but you'll probably see between 5 and maybe 7% growth over the next couple of years per year. So that's not too bad a result, really. If you can get that along with a good 6% yield, which areas like Shepparton offer quite easily, then you're talking 10 to 12% a year. Mm. I mean, who doesn't want an investment that's going to do that? Yeah. Uh, look, th- thinking about the election and the fact that probably the Adani coal mine will go ahead, are there any sort mm. of regional mining areas that have been in the doldrums but may well be in line for a comeback? Well, Gladstone is one of those ones that's already showing um, quite a lot of interest again. It didn't do quite as badly as it looked because what really happened in Gladstone is a whole pile of developers went into Gladstone when it was starting to peak up a little. Mm. They bought built they bought land and built townhouses in the city. When I say city, it's not a city like you and I know it, but in the central part of Gladstone, that they sold for like 600000 and they were never worth that. They were probably only ever worth 300000 And now they sit at three hundred, maybe 250000 So they've lost some value, but in reality, for the people who bought them, it looks like they've lost more than half their value. Gee. We're going to see Gladstone start to turn the corner a little bit. One of the things that Gladstone has got that many other areas don't is it's got very diversified mining, and it's also got the second biggest port in Queensland. Um, and that's being developed even further to take more imports through that port. So I kind of like Gladstone as an opportunity. And I think at the moment it's a good time to buy because there's a lot of those houses in and around central Gladstone that really um, came down a little bit 
and you can probably get in at not too bad a price and still see around about a 6 or 7% yield, mm. which should start to grow as well. Uh, you know, I think Rockhampton suffered quite a bit in the last couple of years and we might see that come back again in the coming few years. And Mackay. Mackay is another one of those mining-affected towns that people bought in in the hope that it was going to do very well. It then flattened, it then fell, but it's just starting to turn the corner again. And it has some tourism appeal as well, Mackay, doesn't it? That's the thing about places like Mackay. Um, and uh, I mean, Gladstone, Rockhampton's a bit touristy, not as much as Mackay. But Mackay is quite a very a pleasant place to go for a holiday. Mm. Uh, so, it's, yeah, it's definitely got that tourist appeal at the same time that's got a little bit of mining influence, a little bit of tourist appeal. And in its own right, it's starting to get on its feet economically a little bit as well. And going right across the continent, uh the Perth market's been, at least an aggregate market, has, has done uh, pretty badly for a number of years. Do you see any uh, light at the end of the tunnel there in terms of parts of Perth? I'm pleased to say yes, finally. I definitely do see that some markets are already turning. The biggest market in and around Perth at the present time is that market in and around the airport. So we're talking about Forest mm-hmm. Field um, and those parts of Perth, Ascot, um, those areas... We've got the Forest Field Airport link going in, and along with that, there's a lot of industrial precincts that are being built to make things easier to get in and out of Perth Airport. The drive time into Perth Airport is going to be cut right down because of that Forest Field link. And what we have in Forest Field is a really interesting demographic. We've got homeowners, even though we don't have high-income earners, so they're lower-income earners, homeowners, not a lot of state housing, and it borders along Wattle Grove there where we've got um, an affluence score of 8 out of 10 compared to just 5 out of 10 in Forest Field. So it's right next door to another area that could give it the ripple effect. And I just think that those kinds of opportunities are really good ones to take because you can buy property low 300s, get a 5.5% return on it, and sit back and wait for that forest field link to be finished. It's got a station included as well. Mm. And you'll probably be able to also coincide all of that with the turn in the, the final turn in the Perth market. Well, M- Margaret, the one thing you've demonstrated to all our listeners is that you do do your homework. You, you just don't <laughs> pick a figure based on tossing a, a dart at a dartboard. There's a lot of homework behind it, and that's why we go to Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial Solutions. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I certainly didn't know where you were going to ask me tonight, today. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to have a little bit of a hint beforehand, but luckily tonight I was able to answer all of your questions. We don't give you a heads up, Margaret. We'd like to test out your your quality (laughs) of knowledge, and you always come through. (laughs) You do. You certainly do test me, but that's, that's good. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy.
And remember, when we talk about a headline interest rate like 3.89%, that is the rate you'll be charged. You always have to ask the question of your lender, what is my comparison rate? Because that adds in the fees and extra charges that can make a difference to what you're really paying back. Our next guest is Dr. Ron Weinberg, who's the CEO of MVision. And uh, Paul Rickard, my colleague here, caught up with Ron last week. And this is a very, very interesting ASX-listed company. Dr. Weinberger, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Now, let's just start with EM Vision because uh, tell me a little bit about the company. You're developing a, a portable brain scanner. So let's maybe we just start with the company and what you're doing and uh, what the market's going to be. Sure. So EM um, Vision or EM Vision obtained intellectual property from the University of Queensland and specifically it's for the medical applications of microwave uh, technology for imaging and diagnostics. So the acquisition was for the entire uh, body uh, using microwave as an analytical tool for diagnosis. The company was formed around this intellectual properties around two years ago. The company is now listed on the ASX. And the purpose of the company is to develop unique technologies and products that provide a clinical unmet need using the microwave imaging process uh, that we've obtained. The first product is focused on the diagnosis of stroke in situations where there is no other way to identify stroke and to differentiate between the different types. And so, we perceive so, that. So, Dr. Yeah. Ron, how are strokes currently diagnosed and, and what do you do differently to, what does your device do differently to the current technology? Sure. So, Today, the only way to diagnose stroke effectively is using uh, CT or MRI, which are very large and expensive devices that sit in a fixed location within the hospital. Mm -hmm. And there is no low-cost, portable, point-of-care way to actually investigate the properties of the brain and abnormalities that occur in the the brain. So we're bringing to market uh, a unique device, a unique technology that is at a modest cost and is point of care in the hospital and also provides a lower cost device for paramedics and first responders. So at the moment, if they pick someone up, uh, say they've, they've been called on, on a triple O number or whatever the equivalent is, uh, if they pick someone up, they don't actually know it's a stroke. They've got to take the, the patient to the hospital and then the patient has to go through an MRI. Is that, is that sort of the current procedure? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, today, uh, when a paramedic or an ambulance, um, let me just say that, when a paramedic arrives at the scene of uh, a situation where the patient might have a stroke, the only way to identify is to use symptoms uh, based on the clinical manifestation. And often it's difficult to determine whether the person has had a stroke or some other uh, medical problem. Today, one of the big problems is is not just whether you can identify strokes, but trying to identify the type of stroke. Right. Okay. And the, the the reason is is by identifying the type of stroke, the clinical intervention that occurs when you get to the hospital in the emergency department is able to be identified and implemented very rapidly and at um, in an urgent manner. So potentially your devices are very a low-cost and very portable way to be able to identify the stroke and the type of stroke, and it can be used by 
a paramedic or in a hospital or in many other situations. Is that really what you're trying to do? Yes, absolutely. That, that's the purpose of the device. Right. And so the, the market, I gather, then is, would be global. So it's a, it's a big market you're looking at. Now, look, like any medical device, I guess there's a, there's a path from feasibility and idea through to commercial production and sale. Where are you in that sort of journey from the idea, the genesis, the prototype, uh, all the way through to sort of seeing this uh, device be sold? Sure. So uh, we just completed our Healthy Human Trials, which is an assessment of the safety of the product, its usability, its ability to be implemented in a hospital, and that's been very successful. That uh, fed into the ethics application that we've recently submitted to Princess Alexandra Hospital. And Princess Alexandra Hospital will host our first clinical trial. And in that particular trial, we'll be looking at 20 to 30 patients using our device and comparing to CT and MRI, which are the standards of care at the moment. We're looking to do our second clinical trial in the second half of 2020. And in that particular situation, we'll be expanding the number of patients and sites that we have. And although we're not absolutely certain at the moment, we'll be looking at around 200 patients in at least two physical sites somewhere in Australia. The, the, the part forward from that is to use that clinical data and evidence for regulatory submission, uh, whether that's in Europe, TGA, or at least the, the, the primary endpoints or the beginning for submission to the FDA. And, and of course, they're the key regulator in the US, and that's, the I guess, the world's global market and uh, our biggest market and also that sets the pace for many other countries. So it's sort of in a all things going right scenario, when could you see uh, approval from the FDA being in place? Well, all of these things, you know, how long is a piece of string? Mm -hmm. It really depends on the mind of the FDA and the circumstances, politics and administrative. But we would like to see um, success with the FDA in 2021. I guess your shareholders have got to be pretty patient then, don't they, in in this sort of uh, business? Yeah, all medical technologies uh, require patience there you know at Nanasonics where I was before it took us a significant period of time to be able to build a company to the size and revenue and profitability that it is today so um, you know if the company is managed effectively if there is good technology if there's a willingness by the management and the board to learn from experts in the field then the direction and the path to success is much better uh, but you know, patience is important uh, in order to be able to see companies like Envision successful. And does the uh, technology have uh, application in other areas of uh, or, or treatment of potentially diagnosis of other types of, uh, uh, I won't say illnesses, but things like strokes? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we do own all the rights to medical applications in all parts of the body, so all disease um, applications. And we are looking at the moment uh, to follow up our first product with investigations into fatty liver disease, which is a very significant health issue that affects one in three to one in four individuals around the world and up to 50% of people over the age of uh, 50. So this is a very large clinical unmet need for which there isn't any way to identify 
fat in the liver, which can then progress to very serious liver disease. So that is one potential application we're looking at. And as we learn more from our doctors, there are many other applications that the technology can be used for where there isn't an existing solution today. Okay, and maybe finally you can tell me a little bit about yourself because uh, I guess from being the CEO of a company like Nanasonics, which is a billion dollar, more than a billion dollar market cap to, uh, to a, I guess, a very early uh, entry company in terms of uh, capitalisation and, and what it's doing. I mean, what was the sort of the attraction for you to sort of get involved with a company like uh, EMV? So, look, um, if you look at my history, having started in IP and R&D, product development, all the way through to regulatory approvals and CEO, um, I've very much been at Nanasonics in the earliest stages of its development and really relished that environment of being able to develop a company from very little to something of significant value. Um, that's really where my passion lies. And uh, I, I guess I'm involved in companies now where they are at earlier stages. And Envision was a company that came across that I came across through my network that had a fantastic technology with an excellent group of uh, founders and directors. And there was uh, an opportunity for me to be able to replicate what had happened at Nanasonic and to really work in the space that I really enjoy and suits me the most. Right. Okay. And and, and when you sort of get out of bed in the morning, what uh, or go to bed or sleep at night, I should say, what are the things that uh, you worry about in terms of uh, of the company and uh, and in in the sort of coming months? What are what are the big issues that you need to confront as as, as a as a board and a company driving EM Vision uh, further? Well, well, I think always the concern is really. Um, the asset that you have the least of, which is which is time. Mm-hmm. And in early stage companies, you can't always predict the direction that technology goes and, you know, the bumps in the road along the way. Um, I believe we have a very strong team, a very capable team in the product development and technology side. So I'm certain that we're going to overcome any technological issues. The questions really are around, you know, what is the timing of getting the product to market and certain unknowns that, that we have in play, for example, regulatory approval, where the authorities uh, don't always or it's difficult to for them to be able to work the timelines that we as a company may necessarily like to have. So those are really the, the, the key issues. Well, look, good luck with the development. I think it's exciting that that sort of technology is... Uh it's going from concept to idea to being put into use uh, in Australia, and uh, I think it's great that those sort of companies give uh, are available for investors on the ASX to at least uh, consider. So, uh, Dr. Ron Weinberger, the CEO of uh, M Vision, thanks for joining us on Switzer. Thank you very much for having me once again. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. 
So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are me teeth? Our final guest is Tracy Angwin, who's a CEO and founder of the Australian Payroll Association and director of Payroll HQ. Tracy, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me, Peter. Okay, so Tracy, I'm intrigued when you say that uh, apparently lots of organisations overpay their employees. How, how does that happen? This is the same way they underpay them, um, except in reverse, I guess. The problem with payroll in Australia is it's, it, it's underestimated in its complexity. So the minute that you employ someone, you're under the same uh, rules and regulations and uh, obligations as, as a large company. So a lot of small businesses don't get this, and then the small businesses become big businesses and they still haven't quite um, got it right. So... You can easily overpay employees both in wages and in superannuation um, by, well, you can certainly overpay superannuation because a lot of organisations think that superannuation is 9.5% on gross earnings and it's actually 9.5% on ordinary time earnings. So oftentimes we'll find employers pay superannuation when they don't have to. But the big one is just not understanding the awards and uh, EBAs that apply to the workers and uh, misinterpreting the rules that are in those awards. So presumably that also applies, Tracy, to underpayment as well? Exactly right. So the challenge is, of course, with underpayment, employees normally will realise they've been underpaid and advise the employer. The problem with under with overpayments, and, and this is not to say that people get overpaid and say, awesome, I've been overpaid, I'm not going to let anyone know, although I'm sure that that does happen from time to time. But what happens is employees actually trust that the pay office will get it right. So if they think that they've been paid a little bit too much, they think that there's you know an, an entitlement there that they weren't expecting, they'll just think, oh, well, the payroll knows best. And therefore, what we often find, and oddly enough, what we've, we find now, because Fair Work has done such a good job of fleshing out... Um, employers that underpay, what we're finding when we go to do payroll audits is we're finding more overpayments than underpayments. <laughs> yeah, look, I've got to say, Paul and I for years have railed against employers who've dudded their employees of their superannuation, and there's plenty sure. of examples of that, but I'm intrigued that, that you say that there's so many instances of people actually overpaying their super. Sure, we, we did some work with a, uh, a charity only a couple of months ago and I think they've got about 1,200 employees and just in the eight months that we audited their payroll, they had overpaid their super over a million dollars and they were a char- they are a charity. Mm. So once, you know, clearly they would like to be paying those payments, uh, you know, in, in providing services to the people that they provide service to. So, um, I mean, you guys probably don't mind a super being overpaid, of course, but you know, the reality is, is um, you know, lots of lots of employers are doing, and the big one that people get wrong uh, is paying paying superannuation on on any overtime payments. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, you made the point already that super is paid on ordinary times earnings. Um, so, t- is the biggest trap around p- overtime and the, the paymaster just basically looking at what was paid for the week and just multiplying that by 9% to work out the super? It's in the, often it's in the, um, the language in the award or the EBA. So, for example, where we see a lot of employers get tripped up and, you know, payroll managers doing the right thing, they're checking the awards and agreements. Yeah, 
but they're just misinterpreting. So it might well say that if someone works uh, in a you know past a certain uh, time or doesn't have a certain um, uh, gap between their shifts or whatever the, the reason is that they might be being paid more, it might say in the award, pay a penalty, um, which is the equivalent of overtime payments. And it's actually not overtime. So that's how super can get under and overpaid because it might use the word overtime in an award, but it's actually not overtime or vice versa. Tracy, moving on to, to something you've identified as pay, payroll fraud, and presumably that's by, I guess, employees or, come, I guess, staff as well. What are, what's payroll fraud and what are the, the sort of the seven most common factors you've identified in relation to payroll fraud? Well, payroll fraud can be attributed to two things. There's, uh, first of all, there's things like uh, leave theft and time theft, and that's from employees, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just poor processes. So that's quite easy to fix. So is that, um, is that intentional we, fraud or, or a bit of... Um... Look, sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes a poor process is a poor process. Right. So I spoke, I, I met a fellow one uh, day, he, was a, he worked at a big financial services firm, about six or 7,000 employees, and he said to me, we found out I was in the payroll industry. He said, payroll? I can't stand payroll. He said, did you know that to apply for a day's annual leave, it, has, it takes me 20 keystrokes? So he said, you know what? I don't bother. Mm. So and presumably not process. a lot of it doesn't get recorded. That's probably the, the big process exactly issue. Right. Yeah. E- exactly right. Exactly provi- right. So if you're right, have, having pieces of paper to record your leave applications, you can guarantee that they're not all heading mm-hmm. to the pay office. But the payroll fraud that we're more involved with is actually when there's fraud committed by someone who works in the payroll opera at the payroll uh, department. Um, like you say, there's there's seven main areas that we've seen over the over time, and like a lot of people have been to jail. The biggest payroll fraud in Australia is, of course, um, the Clive Peters payroll fraud, uh, where about eighteen million dollars was stolen from Clive Peters. Um, and was that the, was there a woman who was doing that? Um, yes, it was. Yeah. The, the thing that's extraordinary, Peter, is the the lady who perpetrated the award, the fraud, um, was a was paid about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, and no one thought it was unusual that she bought um, forty four investment properties in mm. and around Melbourne in eighteen months. Mm. She bought <laughs> four cars, at, four luxury vehicles at uh, at auction. So these are these are the sorts of things. If you're seeing people who should be expected to have fairly modest uh, lifestyles, certainly living beyond their means, that could be one thing you could look at for fraud. Other things are, um, you know, a lot of employers don't don't have their payroll audit trails turned on, and, and because they say, you know, oh, we can't, it, it slows down the payroll system. For example, mm. there are certain fields that you just can't not audit. So, um, you know, we found some payroll fraud once where we could see that um, bank account details were being changed before and after a pay and what the payroll manager was doing was ch- changing casual um, bank account details to her own, mm. paying a few hours to people that wouldn't really even notice it. Um, the managers wouldn't notice it, and, and so that's how she was feeling. Um, so any sort of those regular master file changes are a, are a, a red flag. The big one, um, the most easiest one to perpetrate, this is really not, this is not a payroll fraud to-do list or how-to session, but... It sounds know, the, like the, it, Tracy. <laughs> sounds like it, but go on. Um, the, 
ghost employees are the big one, so we mm-hmm. should always be checking the database for duplication of data. Uh, um, and I guess what you're saying, Tracy, is that we, is I know a lot of companies think about supplier fraud and lots of auditors look at arrangements uh-huh. with suppliers, but mm-hmm. for many companies or most companies, your payroll is your biggest cost. <laughs> I guess there's That's a, exactly right. And I guess getting collusion between payroll staff and others is not uh, is not that hard. So. Yeah, it certainly is. Exactly right. And you don't even need to collude that that much. I mean, um, we worked with a large employer that just had such poor processes um, and we just said that the very least they can do is just run a duplication of data test over their database and sure enough, they found some ghost employees. And look, whilst we've, we, I, we did find ones that there were twins who shared a bank account that lived, lived, lived at home <laughs> with their parents and we thought, oh, we're on to some payroll fraud here. It wasn't the case. But mostly if there is duplication of data, so... Um, tax file numbers, bank details, uh, it's normally cause for uh, an investigation. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times the fraudulent activity happens after hours. So we would always, as part of an audit procedure, check to see who's logging in outside of working hours um, because we've, we've seen that that's, that's a, a bit of a red flag as well. And, and just generally in security, if, if someone's left the organisation, the amount of Logins that we see that are not deleted. So old logins are used to perpetrate payroll fraud often. So that's another one to, to look yeah. at. And I guess, Tracy, when you've got a, an organisation, say, with just one accountant who's doing payroll and all other payments, that's when you could actually get someone who could actually put you... You, you might only be a small in, in uh, rise in costs or in payroll, uh, but it might take you a year before you say, hang on, our payroll's just gone up by 20000 over the year. You, you don't pick it up until end of the year. That's right. With a lot of payroll compliance errors and fraud, what we see is that even small amounts incrementally over time and often over a larger employee population, although it doesn't really need to be that large, can, can have a material impact. And, you know, certainly small businesses, you know, you pull out that sort of money, um, that can that can really affect a small business. Mm. Now, Tracy, you're the CEO and founder of the Australian Payroll Association. That sounds like a fun organisation. You know, you got, <laughs> <laughs> but you're also, direct, <laughs> you're also director of Payroll HQ. What does Payroll HQ do? Pa- payroll HQ is, is a unique uh, managed payroll service firm. So, Whilst there's traditional outsourcing, which is just outsource the labour, it's always been, you know, payroll outsourcing's always just been a labour arbitrage conversation. Um, whereas, if, you know, the, the, the way that they make money is that they have to just provide the services cheaper than you can. So they either have to, mm. um, may, maybe they might offshore it or they have to buy uh, in labour. They use labour locally that's, you know, less qualified than, you know, you might do it yourself. So what Payroll HQ does is they provide a fully managed service for employers, sort of up to about a thousand employees, they probably wouldn't go too much. Also, they might, they might argue. Of course, um, I'm speaking as a non-executive director, so I might be told off for that. Mm. Um, but what they do is they provide a fully managed service where there's absolutely no requirement for any payroll expertise in-house. So it's really great for growing businesses, um, businesses who have had problems with payroll. They've got some quite large employers. Uh, across the country that they, you know, distribute an environment where it's a complicated payroll. It's often useful to have a managed payroll service purely because really good payroll expertise is expensive. Yeah. Tracy, thanks for joining us on the program. Anytime.
That's Tracy Angwin, the CEO and founder of the Australian Payroll Association and director of Payroll HQ. Well, Paul, that's the end of the show. Who would have thought that um, people were overpaying super? You look quite a mix there, Peter, from property to uh, medical devices to payroll, but I guess we all learnt... I learned a lot about payroll, to be honest. <laughs> and you weren't quite sure whether it would be all that interesting, but I think it was. I think a lot of small business people need to be told this could be a really big risk for their company. Mm, absolutely. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Switzer. That was Paul Rickard. Talk to you next week. Britain time! <laughs>